Good morning. Please pray with me. Our Father in heaven today, as we consider, as we contemplate, as we study, as we today strive to learn of Jesus Christ, our great high priest, I pray, dear Lord, that this would not in any way be academic. Lord, I pray that it would be deeply devotional. And I pray, dear God, that we would have a desire to be close to you. Lord, I pray that we would be fully convinced that there is only one way to do that, and that is through the mediator that you have appointed, the man Christ Jesus. Now, Lord, as I open your word and I try to explain this to the people, I pray, dear Lord, that I can do it with clarity and joy. Lord, I pray that they will receive it with receptivity and joy because we ask it in the name of our great high priest, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome to week two in our three-week study on the mediatorial offices of Christ. The mediatorial offices of Christ. Let's define those words very quickly. Mediatorial means a go-between, a medium or the media uh, connects us, the news with us. Uh, Jesus is our mediator, our go-between. Uh, The mediatorial offices of Christ. What are the offices? Well, do not think of chairs and desks, uh, but think of the function or the role. Uh, The word for it is the munis, office, the office. So even as you think of a municipality or a municipal building where government duties or the role of government is carried out, so to the offices or the roles or duties or functions of Jesus. And then he is also called Christ. Uh, That means the anointed one or the Messiah, the mediatorial offices of Christ. It's what the theologians call the munis triplex, the offices of the Messiah, and they are three in number, prophet, priest, and king. In Israel, these three offices were recognized by the people, and those who were placed in those offices uh, were anointed with oil. And so when we say Jesus Messiah or Jesus Christ, we are literally saying Jesus, the anointed one. Uh, In Hebrew, a form of it is Messiah. In Greek, it is Christ or Christos. Uh, Both of them mean the same thing, and that is anointed. And we need all three offices of Christ to minister to our needs. Uh, We are ignorant. We need information. Uh, We do not have knowledge on our own, and so what do we need? Well, we need a prophet to teach us. Uh, We are sinful. We are separated from God. So what do we need? Well, we need a priest to cleanse us. Uh, We are in bondage in the tyranny of sin and Satan. So what do we need? Well, we need a king to free us and to reign over us, to rule over us. And Christ fulfills all three offices. Now, last week, we looked at Christ, our prophet. And you'll remember that from Deuteronomy chapter 18, God promised a great prophet who would be like Moses, not exactly the same as Moses, but like Moses, and he would be referred to as the prophet or that prophet, the great prophet. And for 1,400 years, Israel looked for him. And then he finally arrived on Christmas morning when Jesus was born, But the people didn't recognize him as the great prophet 
until he fed the 5,000 in John chapter 6. John chapter 6, verse 14. When the people saw the sign, the sign of what? The sign or the miracle that he had fed the 5,000 that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet, the Deuteronomy 18 prophet, this indeed is the prophet who has come into the world. And God confirmed that Jesus is the prophet. He did this on the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew chapter 17 when he said to Peter, James, John in the presence of Moses and Elijah concerning his son, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear him. He's the great prophet. Listen to him. And we must listen to him, our great prophet. Why? because no one ever spoke the way that he spoke. John chapter 7, verse 46. Well, today we come to the second of Christ's mediatorial offices, and that is Christ our priest. I became the pastor here in 1992. We arrived in late July, and so our first New Year's Eve in New York was 1992, and we had some visitors who had come to see us from South Carolina, the place from which we had moved, and I, wanting to impress them on New Year's Eve, said, why don't we go into the city and I will take you into Times Square? And so we went down there, and I, being uh, very green to city life, went down, and I didn't realize that you couldn't just walk in, that it fills up, and when it fills up, they block off the streets, and so we're going up one avenue and in one street and down and in, and we can't get in. And here I am with these people, and I have promised them that we're going to be able to get in and see the ball drop. And so in an act of desperation, on one of the side streets, I pulled out one of my freshly printed business cards, which said, North Shore Baptist Church, Pastor Ed Moore. And I said, sir, I have some friends here from out of town could you please just allow for a few more bodies to go in to, to see the celebration in Times Square? And the policeman motioned to his friend who was guarding the gate up ahead, and he said these words, Let him through. He's a priest. <laughs> I wasn't going to correct him because I wanted to see the ball drop. But I am not a priest. I am a pastor, and there is a difference. In Hebrew, the word for priest is Kohen, uh, at least for a godly priest. There were some pagan priests, and there were other Hebrew names that were given, but Kohen is the word that is always used of a priest in the Old Testament. And the general function of the priest is to offer sacrifices to bless the people. You remember the great uh, priestly blessing of Deuteronomy chapter 6 from Aaron when he blessed the people. And the priest is also to pray for the people. Uh, you'll remember in Acts chapter 7, the first martyr uh, and how he was stoned to death. And in Acts 7, as that martyr was being stoned and as he was dying, uh, he prayed for those who stoned him. Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does anybody remember the name of that first Christian martyr? Stephen. Stephen. No, that's not correct. Well, I mean, I guess you could say that it was Stephen, but actually, if you read it in the original, uh, his name was Steve Cohen. Steve Cohen. 
I perform for a very small audience here. I, I, I give, I guess, more or less what are inside jokes from the pulpit. Now, Steve Cohen is the owner of the New York Mets. The Stephen, the Hebrew word for priest Cohen. You're, you're just, uh, you're, you're not worthy of me, but, but you'll, Steve Cohen. Hey, we're out of judges. It's all fun and games from here. But seriously, an easy way to remember what a priest is, is that a prophet represents God to man or speaks to man on behalf of God, but a priest represents man to God or speaks to God on behalf of man. So you remember the word mediator, a go-between, one who connects both parties. Job expressed uh, the need and the dilemma that he was facing very well in his desire for a mediator. He says in Job 9.33, there is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. You see, there is an enormous chasm Uh, There is a great separation, a distance between God and man. It it is vast. And the two parties cannot be joined together because God is holy and we are not. We are sinful. So what has to happen is somebody has to step in between us and bring us together. And Christ, who is fully man and fully God, is the only one that is qualified to do that. So if you can think of it this way, here is God and and here we are. And God wants to help us. He wants to communicate with us. And so what does he do? He sends a representative prophet our way. And that representative is the Christ. It is Jesus who is our prophet. And here we are and we're needing to get to God, well, we also need a representative. We also need a mediator. Well, just as Jesus is God's representative as our prophet, Jesus is also our representative as our priest, that he might connect us or bring us to God. First uh, Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. And this is the importance of Christmas, for if God did not become a man, we would have no mediator. But God did become a man. Merry Christmas. In the New Testament, the book which most fully explains the work of Christ as our great high priest is the book of Hebrews. In fact, that is the point, that is the singular most important point of the book of Hebrews that Jesus is our high priest. Hebrews 8.1. Now the point, the point, the point in what we are saying is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven. If you've been at North Shore Baptist Church for any length of time, you'll recall that I just finished preaching through the book of Hebrews, chapter by chapter and verse by verse, a total of 68 sermons. So today, this in this sermon, I do not simply want to recap what I said about the priesthood of Jesus from Hebrews. Now, if you are interested in... Uh, an extensive verse-by-verse treatment of the priesthood of Jesus from the book of Hebrews, then I would direct you to our website to listen to sermons from chapters 5 and 7 and 10. But for today, I'm not going to recap the arguments from Hebrews. 
And also, as we're dealing with this subject today of Jesus as our high priest, I don't think that very many of you are tempted to go back to the Jewish sacrificial system with their priest and their animal blood sacrifices, seeing as how that system went defunct when the temple in Jerusalem was torn down in A.D. 70. And so I'm not going to spend any time today trying to convince you that Jesus is superior to the priest of Judaism. And honestly, I don't even think very many of you are tempted to go the route of uh, uh, using a Roman Catholic priest uh, to hear your confession in a booth and then absolve you of your sins. Now, there may be some of you who are here today who are Roman Catholic, and we're very glad that you have come today to be with us. Uh, There might even be someone here today who is tempted to go back to the system of having a man uh, absolve you of your sins. But, But I think that most of the people who are assembled here today know that the Roman Catholic Church is not biblical, that it is false, that it is man-made, that it is really damnable, and that it is just a system of religion which will not get you to God. So I'm not going to spend time today trying to convince you of the dangers of the Roman Catholic priesthood, Uh, although I would be happy to speak to you about that afterward if you want to talk about that. But my concentration today will be the priesthood of Christ our mediator. And I would like to direct our thoughts along the following four lines. I would like us to look at the prophecy, the prayers, the pardon, and then to conclude with the problem. Point number one, the prophecy. Just as the messianic expectation from the Jews would be that God would send the prophet or that prophet from Deuteronomy 18, the Messiah prophet, so too there was a messianic hope of a messianic priest. And it comes most prominently from Psalm 110. Uh, By the way, Psalm 110 is the chapter or section of the Old Testament which is most quoted, which is most repeated in the New Testament. And in Psalm 110, verse 4, we read these words. The Lord, Yahweh, has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, forever, after the order of Melchizedek. So what we have to do is we are doing our detective work. We have to determine who is the you to whom the Lord is speaking. And that question is answered earlier in the text in Psalm 110 verse 1, where we read these words. The Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. In other words, God the Father is talking to God the Son. God is talking to God. And he's saying that a priest is coming, and this priest is God. And this priest is not in the line of Levi. He is not a Levitical priest. He is not an Aaronic priest. He is a Melchizedekian high priest. Here's another prophecy concerning the messianic hope of a priest, and that is 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 35, which really is my springboard text for today. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he will go in and out before my anointed forever. 
Here's another one. And this one comes from the book of Zechariah. We see it in Zechariah chapter 3, and we also see it in Zechariah chapter 6. Here's Zechariah 6, verses 12 and 13. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, and, and interestingly, when the Messiah is referred to as the branch in the Old Testament, he is referred to as both the branch of David, or the, the, the outgrowth of David, and he's also called the branch of God, fully God and fully man. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold, the man whose name is the branch, for he shall branch out from his people, and and he shall build the temple of the Lord. Remember how Jesus used this language in John chapter 2, destroy this temple and again I will raise it in three days, but they did not know he was speaking of the temple of his body. That's what's being referred to here, Zechariah 6.13. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne. What does that sound like? That sounds like a king, using the words royal and throne. But as we get to the end of verse 13, it says, and there shall be a priest on his throne. That is very confusing language for the Jews because priests did not sit on thrones. There shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. And so we see the two offices of the Messiah priest and king in this one passage. And as I said, this would have baffled the Jews because how can someone be both a priest and a king? It's either one or the other. Well, remember that Melchizedek was the king of Salem or king of Jerusalem, and he was a priest. Jesus is a king after the order of Melchizedek. But you remember that some people in the Old Testament tried to be both, you remember King Uzziah, uh, King Uzziah, the one of whom Isaiah said when he had his great prophecy in chapter 6, in the year King Uzziah died. Well, you know what King Uzziah died of? He died of leprosy. And the reason that he died of leprosy is because we read about him in 2 Chronicles chapter 26. He, as the king from the tribe of Judah, tried to go into the temple and perform the duties of a priest. Now, the high priest, along with the high priest staff, a total of 81 priests, tried to warn him not to do this, and he rebuked them, and he marched into the temple, and he started to burn incense like a priest. He had no right to be in there, even though he was the king. And immediately, God struck him with leprosy on his forehead, and that leprosy lasted until the day of his death. He remained in isolation, separated from other human beings. Why? Because God limited who could serve as a priest in Judaism. It couldn't be someone who was from the tribe of Judah. It had to be someone who was from the tribe of Levi and from the family of Aaron. So he was a king, but not a priest. He tried to pretend that he was a priest, and he paid a very heavy price. God took the priesthood very seriously, and he still does. And in this passage in Zechariah, we are told that the branch will be both priest and king. And so when Jesus the Messiah arrives, the people were looking for the Messiah prophet. 
Are you that prophet? Clearly, they want the, 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 the Messiah to show up and start to speak to them. And they were looking for the Messiah King, someone to deliver them from the tyranny of Rome. But this office, this office of priest, sadly, and, and I accentuate the word sadly, sadly, they seem to have been content with their own priests. They never said of Jesus, are you the great priest that is to come? Are you the Melchizedekian priest? They never ask him that question. They're not even looking about that. They're not even thinking about that. They are very content with their own priest. And the reason I say, sadly, they were content with their own priest, because the chief priest at the time of Christ were from a sect known as the Sadducees. And the Sadducees were sad, you see, because they did not believe in the resurrection. In other words, they did not believe in the afterlife. They thought that when you died, that was it. Acts chapter 23, verse 8, for the Sadducees, and remember the Sadducees are the chief priests, where the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit. <laughs> they don't believe in the supernatural at all. How crazy is this that your priest doesn't believe in the afterlife? What is the point of going in and making atonement when there is no judgment day, when there is no heaven, when there is no hell? Imagine, if you will. Try to imagine John Lennon as a priest. It's easy if you try. But it is also absurd because there is a heaven, there is a hell, there is an afterlife, and I need a priest working for me who actually believes that there is going to be a judgment day. In 1636, Harvard University was founded with the motto, Truth for Christ and the Church. Harvard University was founded to train pastors. Uh, the name Harvard comes from a man by the name of John Harvard who was a pastor. In its first 70 years, all of the presidents of Harvard were clergymen. And now, where are we 400 years later? Their chief chaplain today is an atheist named Greg Epstein, and he wrote a book, Good Without God. You can't make this stuff up. I mean, the captain of the track team doesn't have any legs. The choir director is tone deaf. Or the chaplain is an atheist. Or the chief priest don't believe in the afterlife. And Israel was content to have the Sadducees as their mediators. They were not looking for the Messiah priest. But thankfully, God promised a Messiah priest, and the Messiah priest did come. That is the prophecy. Here's point number two, the prayers, the prayers. One of the main duties of a priest was to pray for the people and to bless the people in the name of God. Uh, throughout the Bible, we see one of the instruments or symbols that the priest would use as being incense. They would use incense in worship. Now, now what was the function of incense? Well, it wasn't literally to give God a, a, good, a, a good scent 
so that, as if to say that God had literal nostrils and that he would be smelling this and he would be pleased with the smell of it, it was symbolic. But what did the incense represent? We are told this in the last book of the Bible, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 8, that the golden bowls were full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. In other words, incense represents prayer. Do you remember the story back in Numbers chapter 16 when Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron and God became angry and he says to Moses and Aaron, get back because I'm about to do some damage to people and to the people and God sends a plague and this plague kills 14,700 people. And remember that the plague is spreading. It's not going to stop, but it did stop. How did that plague stop? Numbers, Numbers chapter 16, verses 46 and following. It's really interesting how the plague stopped. Numbers 16, 46. And Moses said to Aaron, Moses is not the high priest. Moses is the leader of the people. Aaron is the high priest. Why don't you just do it yourself, Moses? Because I am not the high priest. My brother is the high priest. And Moses said to Aaron, take your censer and put fire on it from off of the altar and lay incense, which represents prayers, on it and carry it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. Why? For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. So what does Aaron do? So Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran. He's an old, old man at this point. And, and, he, and he's, he's carrying the censer, but he's running. And so Aaron took it, as Moses said, and ran into the midst of the assembly. And behold, Paint the picture in your mind's eye. See the wonderful work of the priest. And behold, the plague had already begun among the people, and he put on the incense and made atonement for the people, and he stood between the dead and the living, and the plague was stopped. And the plague was stopped. The people needed a mediator. They needed a priest. They needed the prayers of the priest to go out and to assist them. Well, Jesus is our great high priest, and he stands between the dead and the living, and what does he do? He prays for us. Jesus was a man of prayer. I'll give you one example, John one thirty five. And rising very early in the morning, this is Jesus, and he had been up late the night before healing people, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he, our great high priest, prayed. If you study the prayer life of Jesus, you will be surprised, you will be impressed, and hopefully you will be inspired. You see, Satan wanted to sift Simon Peter like wheat. Did he? No, he did not. Why did he not accomplish what he demanded, what he desired to do? Luke chapter 22, verse 32. It is because of the work of Jesus, our great high priest. Jesus says to Peter, but I have prayed for you 
that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, when you have repented, when you have been restored, strengthen your brothers. This is profound. We need to think about this. We need to concentrate on this. At the point at which Jesus said this, Peter had not yet sinned in denying Christ. In fact, he was resolved that he was not going to sin. How many times have you been resolved that you are not going to sin? You've made a public profession that you will never do that again. You've made promises to God that you will never do that again, and yet you do it again, and so do I. So Peter has not yet sinned, but Jesus has already preemptively, proactively prayed for him for his restoration. Do you see how beautiful this is? Do you see how profound this is? He didn't even sin yet, but Jesus had already prayed for his restoration. Peter slipped. Oh, did he slip. But he didn't fall. And he was restored. And he did strengthen his brethren because on the day of Pentecost, he preached and 3,000 people were saved. Why didn't Peter ultimately fall? Because the great high priest prayed for him. The same reason that you are not going to fall. Tomorrow morning, do you know why you're going to be able to wake up and still be a Christian? It's not because you made a profession of faith 25 years ago. It's not because you go to a good church. It is because Jesus is holding on to you, and he is praying for you. A few hours later, Jesus prayed again. And here's what he said in John chapter 17 in what is commonly known as his high priestly prayer. Notice what Jesus prays in verses 9 through 11. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world. This is one of the key verses which supports the doctrine of particular redemption or limited atonement. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I am coming to you. He's speaking of the ascension and session to the Father's right hand. Holy Father, I am praying to you. Keep them, my disciples, in your name, which you have given to me, that they may be one even as we are one. The doctrine of union with Christ. Continue to follow the beautiful prayer of Christ down in verses 15 through 17. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Uh, They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. How often do we quote the phrase, thy word is truth? Do you know that that word, thy word is truth, comes from a prayer? And, And then verse 24. Verse 24. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given to me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Jesus prays for his people. He prays for his disciples who were with him at that time, and he prays for us. He prays for you. The reason you know you're going to be in heaven is because Jesus, our great high priest, has prayed that you would be, and God answers his prayers. 
And did you know that Jesus did not stop praying for you when he went to heaven, but even now, as he is there, what is he doing? He is praying for his elect. Hebrews chapter 7, verses 24 and 25. He holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. An indestructible life, it is a forever priest. And he continues as a priest, verse 25. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those whom who draw near to God through him. Why? Since he always lives. He always lives. He always lives to make intercession for them. This is my uh, prayer notebook. I try to maintain a consistent prayer life. Though how I fall short. I have different categories here, miscellaneous, new items, deep issues of the heart, discipleship, kingdom, salvation, family, North Shore Baptist Church, health, so forth and so on. I, I write down the requests in categories. I, I, and if you ask me to pray for you, I will pray for you, but one of the ways that I will know to pray for you is that I will write it down, for unless I write it down, I will forget it. But even when I write it down, I get busy. And I become prideful and I become arrogant. And I think that on that particular day, it's okay that I don't pray. And so sinfully, I will miss days of prayer. But Jesus, your great high priest, is praying for you faithfully and constantly and effectively. Robert Murray McShane, who lived from 1813 to 1843, he did not even make it to his 30th birthday. He was a pastor in Scotland, in Dundee, Scotland, a church where sin. Sinclair Ferguson happens to be at this time. But, but Robert Murray McShane uh, uh, said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room. In other words, here you are in a room and you're, you're eavesdropping upon the prayers of Christ and he is praying for you. He says, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet, McShane goes on to say, yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me, end quote. Louis Burkhoff, who has written a systematic theology, the systematic theology which everybody read before they were reading Wayne Grudem, he was a professor at Calvin Theological Seminary. He lived from 1873 to 1957, said this concerning Christ praying for us. It is a consoling thought that Christ is praying for us even when we are negligent in our prayer life that he is presenting to the Father those spiritual needs which were not present to our minds and which we often neglect to include in our prayers, end quote, and hallelujah. You, do you hear what Burkhoff is saying? You forget to pray for you, and even when you do pray for you, you don't always know what you should be praying. Yet, Jesus never forgets to pray for you, and when he prays for you, he is praying that which is exactly right. What a great high priest. So, 
Point number one, the prophecy. Point number two, the prayer. And as we think of Jesus, our mediator, our great high priest, we now come to the main point of his ministry, and that is the pardon. The pardon. It's by far the major function of the priest. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1, it is the function of the priest to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. You see, sin has a cost, and the cost is death. Ezekiel 18.20, the soul that sins shall surely die. There is a cost associated with sin. There is a currency for which you pay for sin, and it is death. And priests were appointed to help with this. Here we go. Hang on to this word. Hang on to this adverb. They were appointed to help with this chasm, with this separation, with this unholiness. They were appointed symbolically, but not in reality. It was all symbolic. Everything that they did was an image, a picture, a type, a shadow, and not the real substance. It was symbolic. Hebrews 10.4. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And it doesn't matter how pure and how clean the goat or the bull is, it is impossible for that bull or that goat to take away sins. A few weeks ago, Anna's mother, in an attempt to be... uh, loving and kind and generous to one of her granddaughters, bought her a Barbie doll. This particular Barbie doll, however, you could not see the full, the full form of the doll, and there was, uh, the, there was a little cardboard over the legs of the, the Barbie doll, and it happened to be a Barbie doll with a prosthetic leg. And so I'm going into my after-school class, and just to get the ball rolling, I go around the class, and I say, what do you guys want for Christmas? And they're all going around the room, and one little girl says, I want a Barbie doll. And thinking about this, I said, how would you like to have a Barbie doll with a fake leg? And Keith Allen's daughter, Acacia, with a very puzzled look, says, well, the whole doll is fake. (laughs) (laughs) By definition, a doll is fake. By definition, the work of the Old Testament Levitical Aaronic high priest is symbolic. It didn't really take away sin. All it did was point to Christ. I'm hoping that we have a white Christmas. And I am certainly hoping that I will be with a very special person at Christmas. Do you know who this is? <laughs> who is that? It's not Anna Moore. It's a picture of Anna Moore, okay? This is Anna Moore. This is a picture of Anna Moore. And believe me, there is a difference. There is a difference. Everything in the Old Testament that the priest did was a picture. It wasn't the real thing. Everything the Old Testament priest did was required, but it didn't actually remove sin or it didn't bring pardon. And even if they did it perfectly, it was only a picture. 
Hebrews 10, 11. And every priest stands at his service offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Which can never take away sins. Which can never take away sins. But it was still important. And every Jew knew how important the work of the priest was. And so what would the priest do? The priest would work hard. They would offer service. It was hard work to slaughter the animals and then to follow the prescribed duties that God required, the sprinkling of blood and so forth, the, 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 the burnt offerings and so forth. It was a very difficult, laborious, hard, bloody, messy job. And in order to do it, they had to work hard. And they also had to render reverence and obedience. They were not just going through the motions. It had to be done exactly as God commanded or they would be struck dead. And they had to offer acute precision with intense conscientiousness of prayers and blessings and offerings and and incense and most importantly, blood. But you know what they did not offer? Never On one occasion, did any of them offer themselves? See, here's what the priest would do. The priest would go to work in the morning, and he would do his job, and he would do the job well, slaughtering the animals and sprinkling the blood. But but, but when his shift was over, he would walk home with his life intact, and he would spend time with his wife and his children. The point is, the priest was around death all the time, but the priest never had to offer himself. On the other hand, our great high priest, Jesus the Messiah, Christ the Messiah, was both the priest and the offering or the sacrifice. He offered himself. Hebrews 7.27 He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all, here we go, when he offered up himself. When he offered up himself. When he offered up himself. Greater love hath no man than this, but that a man would lay down his life for himself, for his friends. You see the beauty of his work. He is both the priest and the sacrifice. And since he was spotless, and since he fulfilled the law, and since he was a man, and since the debt was paid in full by death, therefore God raised him from the grave, and he enthroned him at his right hand, and he forever lives as our great high priest. In other words... The gospel is of first importance. And by looking to Christ and trusting in him, you have full, 100%, irrevocable pardon from God and peace that endureth. Hebrews 10, 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. A messianic mediator who accomplishes full salvation, Christ our priest. And so, there's no longer a need for any more priest. Let him through, he's a priest. No, I'm not. 
I know it says in Revelation we are a kingdom of priests, but in terms of mediatorial access to God, there ain't but one priest, and that is all you need, and that's all that there is. There is no longer a need for blood sacrifices, and you who have trusted in Christ, you know this. You know the one who is both priest and sacrifice. But by nature, we still have a problem, which brings us to the last point today. You've heard the prophecy. You've seen Jesus, the one who prays. You now know of pardon, which comes through the offering of himself. But here's the problem, and listen closely. The problem is that we, by nature, no no matter how good our theology may be, and I know most of you, and I know most of you have good theology, but no matter how good your theology might be, still try, by nature, to reach God on our own without a mediator. I'm speaking to saved people today. If you are not saved, if you do not know the Lord, please come speak to me after the service. I would love to explain to you what it means to be saved. But I'm speaking now to my brothers and sisters in Christ. We, by nature, even though we have an understanding of substitutionary atonement, and and our understanding of that is spot on, our hearts, our inclination, our disposition toward God, our nature lends itself toward pleasing God without a mediator, without a great high priest. So here's God, and here we are. And we know on paper that it is not of works. And we want to draw close to him. Uh, That is, subjectively, we want to feel his presence. That is a good thing. James 4 says, draw near to God. But the question is, how am I going to get where I am right now into the presence of God or the felt presence of God to draw close to him? Even as a Christian, one who has been saved by faith alone, in Christ alone, through the work of Christ alone on the cross, my natural inclination and your natural inclination is some form of good works. Spinners, 1978, I'm working my way back to you. That that's kind of how we get into someone's good graces. We've done something wrong. How are we going to get out of the doghouse? We've got to work to get there. And so I want to point out in closing three dangers of bypassing our mediatorial Messiah, priest Jesus Christ. And here is danger number one and that is working our way to God. It may come in the form of serving in the church or giving to the poor, which is especially something we like to do at Christmas, or spending more time in prayer or getting up earlier to read the Bible or fasting or just generally doing good. Now, I am not in favor of doing bad as opposed to good. In fact, doing good is good. You should be doing good. But none of the activities that I just mentioned are mediatorial. They cannot connect you to God. They cannot get you to God. Only Jesus, our high priest, can get you to God. No matter how hard you work, 
no matter how early you get up. It is good for you to work for Jesus and the church and the poor. But every single act of work has to be in and through and by and for him. And his sacrifice has to be at the forefront of our mind. Just as you cannot be saved by good works, you cannot be sanctified by good works. You need a mediator. And you need an acute awareness of that mediator. We work for Jesus because he is worthy and we love him. We do not work for him in order to get close to him. And it is our tendency to say, all right, God, I've done bad. I've been lazy. You and me, we need to get close, and now I'm going to get to work. What you need is a mediator. What you need is Jesus. Others attempt forms of looking inward. Danger number two is mourning our way to God. This is an attempt, whether intentional or whether it is coming naturally, just to feel bad about ourselves. Self-deprecation, to say the things that we have done wrong, to confess our sins aloud, or even to confess them directly to God. Self-abasement, introspection, self-searching, intentional mourning. It's true that we are to examine ourselves. And it is true that we are to grieve our sin. But it doesn't get you to God. It's not an end in and of itself. Rock of Ages, verse 2. Not the labor of my hands can fulfill thy law's demands. Could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save and thou alone. Doesn't matter how badly you feel about your sin. It does not matter how accurately you assess your sin. If you say to yourself, well, I don't make excuses for my sin. I own up to what I have done. The buck stops here. That is not a bad thing. But that is not enough to get you to God. Why? Because there is enough pride and enough self-centeredness in our remorse to send us to hell for an eternity. You're never going to be operating with pure motives. My repentance needs repenting of. My tears need to be cried over. What you primarily need is not to feel bad about yourself as if you feel badly enough about yourself and then God becomes pleased with you. No, it's good that you feel bad about yourself for indeed you are bad, but more than feeling bad about yourself, you need a mediator. The answer is not in your heart. The answer is in Christ alone. Number three, sometimes we try to reach God through an experience of worship. Danger number three is feeling our way to God, emoting our way to God. Oh, I love that church. Every time I walk into that church, I feel the presence of God. The ceiling is vaulted. Congregation is reverent. They have stained glass. Oh, I love that church. It's very casual. I feel like I'm in my living room and I'm just going to cozy up with God and, and sit there and 
drink a cup of hot chocolate with him. I feel close to God because I'm in that room. I feel close to God because of that music. When the music is just right and the, 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 the lights are lowered just right and the mood of the song is right, correct and the volume and the tempo, well, it is then that I feel close to God. It is then that I can close my eyes and I can lift my hands and I will be in the presence of God. That's deception. I, I have seen many in my years of ministry who are really good at crying and having some sort of emotive look on their face and raising their hands. And in talking with them later, I realized that at the same time they were expressing such Emotion in worship, they were living in deep, gross, immoral, habitual, unrepentant sin. Now it is true that God's Spirit works to bring us joy and comfort through music and liturgy and the presence of the church gathered. Amen, I would never deny that. You should engage emotionally in corporate worship. But that does not bring you close to God. Only Jesus does. 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ also suffered, there's the gospel, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. Why? That or so that he might bring us to God. John chapter 14, verse 6, This is a verse that you should know. This is a verse which you should share when you are witnessing to someone who is unsaved. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. You ought to know that verse and use it in your evangelism. But you also ought to use this as a saved person in your personal life in coming close to God, for there is no way, even for the saved, to draw close to God apart from Jesus. One way in sanctification that is the person in the work of Jesus, period. And so it's a big problem if you try to go directly in your car from Brooklyn to Staten Island without getting on the Verrazano Bridge. But it's a bigger problem if you try to get to God through good deeds or introspection or emotive worship apart from Christ your mediator. The writer of Hebrews makes it clear that drawing close to God is only through means of our great high priest. He's writing to Christians. I am preaching to Christians this morning. And in closing, listen to what the writer of Hebrews says. And I would even encourage you to turn to it. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 22. Therefore, brothers... You are saved. You are in the family of God. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places, to come into the presence of God, to the holy of holies, how? By the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, what ought we to do in light of the gospel? With the gospel in the forefront of our thinking, here we go, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith 
with our hearts sprinkled, clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. The way that you get there is through Jesus. And so I would encourage you today to desire, more than anything else, to be close to God. But I beg you, do not attempt to get there apart from Jesus, your mediator. Make sure that all of your attempts to draw near to God are through Christ, our priest. Father in heaven, thank you for allowing us today to, Lord, just contemplate such a wonderful truth that Jesus is our priest. I pray that we indeed would appreciate this and that we would be mindful of this as we pray. And so in Jesus' name, we ask that you, Lord, would make us to love and to know, to appreciate and to worship our great high priest, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.